Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, before I introduce our speakers, uh, let me just make a couple of quick notes. Um, first of all, I wanted to bring to your attention a sign-up sheet outside for uh, Cato Today. If you're not familiar with Cato Today, it's a daily email newsletter that we send out to keep you apprised of what's going on at the Cato Institute, new studies, op-eds, highlights from our blog, and, of course, uh, notifications of events like this one today, where we're going to be discussing uh, the Columbia Free Trade Agreement as well as trade adjustment assistance. also wanted to bring your, to your attention the Cato Handbook on Policy. Uh, this is a publication that kind of gives you an overview of the issues that we deal with at the Cato Institute, which is uh, pretty much all the issues you'll deal with here on Capitol Hill, things ranging from Social Security to fighting the war on terrorism to, uh, of course, free trade. Um, with that, let me uh, introduce our first speaker today. Our first speaker is uh, Dan Griswold, who is the director of our uh, Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, Dan focuses on a number of issues, obviously free trade, but also immigration, globalization, protectionism, things along those lines. Uh, he's testified before numerous congressional committees in the past and, in fact, used to work on Capitol Hill as a congressional press secretary. And uh, he has also spent time as an editorial page editor um, at the Colorado Springs Gazette. Uh, most pertinent for today is the fact that he is uh, the co-author of a study that we released uh, not long ago on the Columbia Free Trade Agreement, along with uh, another one of our scholars, Juan Carlos Ildago. Um, you can check out all of his writings at Cato.org, as well as a specific free trade site that we have called Freetrade.org. Uh, hopefully very easy to remember. If you go to Freetrade.org, you can um, also check out uh, an interesting new web application that we just posted about a month ago that allows you to, uh, to check out pretty much every member of Congress's record on trade. You can go back and look at all of their votes that they've cast for the past several Congresses and find out who are the free traders, who are the protectionists, who are the isolationists, etc. With that, I'll turn things over to Dan Griswold. Thank you very much, Brandon, and thank you, everybody, for coming out today. The case for the Columbia Free Trade Agreement is, is about one part economics, nine parts uh, foreign policy, and the opposition is about ten parts politics. Uh, and I'll get into that. As we've seen this week, the majority leadership in the House has indefinitely postponed the vote on the Columbia Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said in a statement and I'll just read a couple of sentences from it. Despite progress made by President Uribe, Colombia remains a dangerous place to be a labor activist. And for those who commit these acts of violence, there is little threat of persecution or punishment. Sustained progress on the ground remains a prerequisite for our support. Keep that phrase in mind. Sustained progress on the ground as we examine the record uh, in Colombia. Now, purely in terms of trade, this agreement delivers the level playing field that members of Congress are always saying they want. About 90% of Colombia's exports to the United States currently enter the country duty-free because of the Andean Trade Preference Act. Uh, and that points out why I think it's uh, false reasoning to tie it to passage of trade adjustment assistance, which my colleague Sally James will address in a moment. You know, I think you could conduct a nationwide manhunt with the FBI and you'd have a hard time finding a worker that's going to be displaced uh, by this agreement. Uh, the agreement would primarily knock down barriers in Colombia to U.S. exports uh, to that country. Nearly 80% of U.S. exports of consumer and industrial products would be duty-free on the day of enactment uh, of the agreement, and the remaining tariffs would be phased out over the next 10 uh, years. The agreement would allow such important U.S. exporters as Caterpillar uh, to compete more effectively uh, in Colombia. They currently face tariffs on their earth-moving equipment, which are very important in that resource-rich country. For American farmers, the agreement would eventually phase out an average tariff on U.S. farm exports of 11.3%, whereas Colombian farm exports to the United States face an average tariff of 0.1%. Uh, the agreement would deliver immediate export opportunities, uh, especially for beef, pork, uh, yellow corn, rice, wheat. Uh, and Colombia is already the single biggest uh, customer for U.S. farm exports in South America. The U.S. International Trade Commission estimates that when the agreement's fully implemented, 
U.S. exports to Colombia will be 1.1 billion higher than they would be uh, without the agreement. And a comprehensive trade agreement would also benefit Colombia by opening its market, making it more competitive uh, for consumers uh, there in Colombia, encouraging more foreign investment, and strengthening its ties to the world's largest economy. In contrast, rejecting a trade agreement with Colombia because of lingering violence in that country would be an irresponsible mistake, a colossal blunder uh, by this Congress. It would sacrifice our national interests in a stable and peaceful and prospering Colombia for the sake of narrow ideological and partisan interests. More than its economic benefits, a free trade agreement with Colombia would reward and institutionalize the dramatic progress that has been made in that country in the half decade under President Uribe. Now, violence is a real issue in Colombia. It is one of the most violent societies uh, in the world. Uh, but it doesn't just affect trade unionists. It affects teachers, journalists, maybe even think tank scholars, uh, politicians, a lot of them are President Uribe's own party. However, Democratic leaders and their union allies uh, fail to credit the Colombian government with the dramatic progress that has been made there in, in what only a few years ago seemed to be hopeless odds. The real story in Colombia is not the current level of violence, but the dramatic progress that's been made. And it, that violence has dropped sharply because of concrete policies made by the Uribe government. His administration has established a protection program for uh, vulnerable groups in society, uh, with trade unionists being 1,500 of them being the most numerous participants uh, in the program. Colombia has created a special unit under its attorney general to investigate priority cases. They are making progress. It's a system-wide problem down there in bringing people to justice, but they are making progress. His government has boosted the police presence in every major city and jurisdiction uh, in Colombia, and more than 30,000 paramilitaries have been demilitarized and have returned uh, to civilian life. And the results of this have been dramatic. Earlier in this decade, Colombia was considered a fail near a f becoming a failed state with violence widespread, uh, public order uh, virtually lacking. But since 2002, homicides in Colombia have declined by 40%. Attacks, uh, terrorist attacks by 77% and kidnappings by more than 80%. This is a very successful, encouraging record. In a city like Medellin, which was considered a kind of no man's land for drug dealers, uh, the violent rate has dr dropped even more dramatically and that is becoming uh, a tourist magnet. Tourism is up dramatically to Colombia as well. The number of assassinations of union members has declined even more dramatically from about 200 assassinations per year in 2001 and 2002. In President Uribe's first full year in office, that number dropped uh, in half in 2003 and has continued to fall since then. The AFL-CIO in a recent report uh, claims that 38 union members uh, died last year uh, violently. The government uh, says that it's 25, but either one of those numbers marks an 80 to 90 percent decline in violence against union members uh, in the five and a half years, almost six years of the Uribe ad administration. So it's declined even more sharply than violence overall. The AFL-CIO re uh, repeats the figure of 2,245 trade unionists who have died violently in Colombia since 1991. Uh, and I don't dispute that figure, but it's heavily front-loaded. Four out of five of those killings occurred prior to the Uribe uh, administration. <clears throat> uh, union members still get assassinated, but they account for less than one out of ten uh, civilian uh, killings uh, in Colombia. Another think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, calculates that a trade unionist is actually less likely to be murdered than a non-unionist in Colombia. They're actually safer uh, than their non-union uh, fellow citizens. But instead of giving the Uribe government due credit for this dramatic decline in killings, the AFL-CIO insists on punishing the current president and the people of Colombia for the sins committed by previous administrations. And not only have the crime figures improved in Colombia, uh, but economic and social and other indicators have made a dramatic turn for the better. 
Uh, the economy has been growing at an average of 5% under President Uribe, 7% last year. This is a very healthy growth rate. Direct foreign investment in Colombia has tripled from $2.1 billion in 2002 to $6.3 uh, billion. The poverty rate has fallen by 20% uh, under President Uribe. The unemployment rate has fallen from 15 to 11%. Uh, a combination of pro-growth policies and a more uh, secure environment uh, for people there has been a great tonic uh, for Colombia and has improved the living conditions of millions of people uh, in that country. The proposed trade agreement with Colombia grew out of America's long-term commitment uh, to our ally, Colombia. Colombia is one of our best allies in Latin America, and the free trade agreement flows out of uh, policies that were established uh, <clears throat> uh, in the early 1990s. In fact, in 1991, a Democratic Congress passed the Andean, Trades Preference, Andean Trade Preferences Act, which allows uh, imports from Colombia and other countries in that region to enter the United States uh, duty-free, 90% of them or more. In the late 1990s, uh, Democratic President Bill Clinton worked with a Republican Congress to start sending uh, aid to Colombia for their program called Plan Colombia, which was an organized effort to combat the, uh, the vicious left-wing uh, guerrillas called the FARC uh, and also uh, illicit drug dealers uh, in that country. The free trade agreement with Colombia was designed to both strengthen civil society in Colombia and also to open up economic opportunities for U.S. companies to reach the, the 44 million uh, upwardly mobile pro-American consumers in Colombia. Approving a free trade agreement with Colombia is about supporting a market democracy in our hemisphere where liberal values are under attack. It's about being a reliable partner in turbulent times. It's about building long-lasting institutions in Colombia. President Uribe is term limited out. He's not going to be the president after 2010. And this is about strengthening institutions in that country so that it can remain a vibrant, pluralist democracy oriented towards the United States and the global economy. Unfortunately, to appease one of the party's core constituencies, Democratic leaders in Congress would punish the people of Colombia for the failings of previous leaders uh, in that country. They've set a vague and basically unreachable uh, set of requirements and standards designed really to thwart any fair and comprehensive uh, consideration of the U.S.-Columbia agreement. I just ask you, think of that phrase I quoted earlier on. What could President Uribe possibly do in the next six months that would demonstrate, quote, concrete evidence of sustained results on the ground that he has not already demonstrated in his nearly six years uh, in, in office? The Democrat, let's be frank, the Democratic leadership uh, wants to kill this bill without their fingerprints being on it. They want to smother this agreement in the crib without uh, any evidence being on the record. But our neighbors in Latin America uh, won't be fooled. If this Congress refuses to bring the Columbia Free Trade Agreement to a vote, our neighbors in Latin America are going to see it as a rebuke to one of our closest allies, and they will see it as an abdication of American leadership at a time when people like Hugo Chavez are ready to fill the vacuum. Thank you very much. Well, as you all know, the uh, congressional leadership has been intent on tying passage of the FTA, the Columbia FTA, uh, with consideration of uh, TAA expansion, Trade Adjustment Assistance expansion. Our next speaker is going to address TAA. And uh, her name is Sally James. She is a uh, policy analyst at uh, the Cato Institute, where she focuses on uh, trade, uh, agricultural policy, and uh, other globalization issues. Uh, prior to joining Cato, she, was an she worked in the um, Office of Trade Negotiations in the Australian Government's Department of Foreign, Aid Foreign Affairs and Trade. Excuse me. Um, she is the author of a study called Maladjusted, which you should have picked up on your way in, which looks at uh, the expansion of TAA or even the continuation of TAA and whether it is a good idea for, uh, for our country. Um, she's also author of a forthcoming study on the presidential candidates and their position on 
uh, on free trade, and that should be released very shortly. I should note that uh, she is Australian, and un- un- unfortunately we were unable to secure a translator. Uh, <laughs> she has promised me she will do her best to speak proper English. So with that, I'll turn things over to Sally James. Thank you, Brandon, for that lovely introduction, and thank you for coming uh, today. I'm going to speak a little bit about the other side of this erstwhile grand political bargain between supporters of of free trade and those who are sceptical of trade deals, particularly organised labour. The Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, and I'm going to focus today mainly on that program, almost exclusively on the program that's targeted towards workers. There are separate programs for firms and for farmers. But the the TAA program started in the 1960s as a way to secure political support for trade liberalisation from groups that would be otherwise hostile. Uh, By providing extra income support, training uh, and job relocation assistance, it was supposed to ease the transition uh, of workers from their old jobs which were no longer tenable because of import competition to new ones that would be created as the economy switched to uh, concentrating on its comparative advantage. It was also designed to share uh, the unevenly distributed gains from opening trade uh, and labour markets uh, could adjust more seamlessly, it was thought, by this program. the previously protected and their political surrogates would thus be mollified and and the trade deals could go ahead. This bargain has apparently broken down. Uh, Wednesday's events, I think, show just how fragile uh, the much-publicised bipartisan deal that was signed just less than 12 months ago uh, really was. Um, Democratic leaders have said uh, repeatedly that they would consider the Columbia deal again uh, after some of their domestic policy priorities have been addressed, and that includes uh, an expanded trade adjustment assistance program. But I I really think, and obviously this is probably going to come up in the the question and answer period today, that a great deal of trust on on trade uh, has been lost recently. Uh, The administration has already threatened to veto the expanded trade adjustment assistance program, which was passed uh, by a sizable majority by the House last year, on the grounds of its cost, which is some extra $9 billion over 10 years, and what the President saw as unnecessary expansions of the program, widening it to workers that that a lot of people are questioning whether their jobs are really going to be related to, to trade changes at all. Uh, the President also objected to some of the offsets proposed to pay for this program, mainly the delaying of a, of a tax break for multinational corporations. Now, the, this week's proceedings, I, wouldn't, I would have thought, wouldn't have helped to sway the President in his convictions that this program is not a good idea. Let me just briefly run through the current trade adjust, adjustment program and uh, the proposed changes. Currently... Workers eligible to receive trade adjustment assistance, and it's manufacturing workers primarily at the moment, receive up to two years of income support, cash income support and training, relocation and job search assistance, and a health care tax credit. And for older workers, um, there's a wage insurance component as well that compensates them if they get a new job and it doesn't pay as much as the old job, it will compensate them for some of the difference. The annual cost of this trade adjustment assistance for workers has been up to a billion dollars in recent years, and that jumped sharply. It was, it was lower than that, um, but it jumped sharp, sharply after the previous expansion to this program, which was instituted as part of the 2002 Trade Act that gave President Bush trade promotion authority. It serves about 50 to 70,000 people a year. That varies, obviously. Uh, the program, I should note here, actually expired at the end of last year, but the 2008 omnibus spending bill included funding to keep the program going to the 30th of September 2008, but it's not actually authorised. It's just running on the appropriation. In the meantime, Congress is continuing to deliberate about how to change trade adjustment assistance. So the House bill, um, and I that's, at the moment, it's at the Senate Finance Committee, and I'll go into that in a, in a moment. But the House bill, what does it do? Well, it doubles the cost of the program over the next 10 years. It expands the income support available to eligible workers up to about $26,000. Uh, it, it also expands the training allowance. And, and this is a very important one, I think. It broadens the eligibility requirements in a few ways. Firstly, 
perhaps most importantly, service workers and even government workers would be covered by the program. Now, it's not clear to me immediately how government workers would be affected by a trade agreement. Maybe it's in the offshoring component if certain you know, data processing um, parts of a, of a government agency were outsourced, maybe that's what they're thinking of. But it's not clear to me how that works. Secondly, there's a degree of automa automation that's going to be built into this new process. Um, any industry with more than three firms deemed eligible for TAA in a six-month period would see all workers in that industry covered, even in, if import competition were not the primary cause of their job loss. Thirdly, workers in an industry subject to an unfair trade ruling, so countervailing or um, duties, for example, by the International Trade Commission, would be automatically eligible as well. The House uh, plan provides tax incentives and subsidies to entire communities as well, deemed to have suffered from trade liberalisation. The House bill, bill would also, and this is a particular bone of contention uh, for some people in, in the Republican administration, it would deny funding for the program to any non-state providers of employment and case management services. In other words, private sector initiatives, faith-based initiatives to help people get back to work, they would not be eligible for any of this. It must come from a state government employee for it to be eligible for this program. Um, and the House Bill also creates yet another federal agency to manage the program. So, as I said, this program's now in, in the Senate Finance Committee. Um, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Bocchus has been, I think, the biggest champion of an expanded TAA. He has repeatedly stated that an expansion of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program must be improved, approved sorry, before any trade deals are considered. He is not alone in that. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has same, said the same thing, and that was even before this week's events. They've been very uh, consistent and very expansive about what they want from this program and their deep conviction that nothing will pass, no trade deals will pass without this program being expanded and extended. Um, Max Bocchus, basically the House bill is, is pretty much a replica of what his plans are as well. So you can see that the Senate um, and the House were as one as to what they would like to see. Apparently, um, Chairman Bocchus and the Ranking Finance Committee member, Charles Grassley, have met already uh, to hammer out a deal, and they've both recently not given details but said they've agreed it's going to be bipartisan, um, which is you know, always an ominous sign for people who favour limited government. When they start agreeing on things, I start getting nervous. Um, there are many reasons why the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program is, is misguided and an expansion even more so. So I want to go through some of those reasons. At the practical level, it's not clear to me that the program is working and even the Government Accountability Office has called it ineffective. Only about a quarter of certified workers receive benefits, largely because they actually they find work before they have a chance to receive benefits. They find it soon after being uh, laid off, which is surely, I think, the best way to adjust to new trade policy. Um, at a cost of about $12,500 per participant, I'm questioning whether the training program is good value for money. That's, that's a lot of money. Um, let, let's be clear, unemployment is, is unfortunate. It's a hard knock for workers and for their families. But it's also a feature of a dynamic economy capable of moving resources, including labour, to their best use. So here's what we know about unemployment arising from import competition. A 2001 study showed that workers who are most likely to be laid off because of import competition, and that's manufacturing workers, were no less likely than other workers in their sector to be unemployed, to be re-employed, no less likely. So in other words, it's not so much the trade policy angle here, it's the fact that trade policy affects certain sectors disproportionately. It's the sector that's the issue here, not the workers per se, all other things being equal. Studies have shown that trade competition accounts for about 3% of layoffs each year. So in other words, the vast share of unemployment comes from business cycle movements, changes in consumer tastes, competition from other domestic firms and technological change. Think of a digital camera versus a film camera. When was the last time anyone built, bought film? 
a long time ago, which is why Kodak laid off something like 30,000 workers in its factory. But no one's calling for the ban of the, of the digital camera. No one's calling for special program for those workers. So let's be clear about how the trade unemployment nexus works. Trade barriers, their explicit purpose is to redistribute income from one group to another. They are a way for special interest groups to capture the political process to obtain monopoly power, to make people pay more than what they otherwise would for something. It takes relatively small amounts from the many consumers. They don't notice it so much, and they distribute those takings to a few. They do notice it. Their jobs depend on it. Certainly their wages above what they otherwise would be certainly depend on it. Um, that is when the damage is done, when that policy is instituted. That is where the intervention takes place. And I would argue, if anyone's due compensation, it's consumers. I pay a little bit extra for every bit of paper that I buy. I don't get compensated for that. Reversing that bad policy by lowering the trade bar barriers then creates only artificial victims, not in the sense that their unemployment isn't real and painful, I don't mean that, but their wages, or indeed their jobs, were never a feature of a free market. They were always supported by the redistribution of income. I read an op-ed, I couldn't find the reference to it today, I would have brought it along, but I read an op-ed a few months ago that compared the so-called losers from trade liberalisation to the schoolyard bully who, when he's pre prevented from extracting menaces, then asks for compensations from the headmaster because he's not getting as much money as he used to. So what should be done then? Is there anything the government can do that doesn't represent an expansion in its power to help the transition of workers? Well, first of all, replace this outdated and politically irrelevant system that policies, with policies that promote the freedom and personal responsibility of individuals. Um, I think that the support for the Columbia Free Trade Agreement, and Dan touched on this, it should not be tied to an expanded trade adjustment assistance. In terms of the you know, job dislocation uh, effect, I don't think it's really an issue, as Dan said, in this case because of Columbia's uh, preferences. But are there some things the governments can do? Well, remove the tax bias against individually purchased uh, health savings accounts. Some people have said that American, um, some of the rising fear of, of job loss because of trade is primarily due to the fact that most health insurance is provided because it's tied to your employment. Now, if we remove that tax bi bias against the personally purchased uh, health insurance, that, that might ease some of that concern. Let workers decide for themselves whether further training or career advice is necessary and then leave them free to choose the type of training they want that they think is going to be most appropriate rather than insisting that it be provided by, by uh, state-run bureaucrats. Also to cease the mercantilist thinking, and this is a more broader point, that import competition is, is something that must be tolerated only in order to open export markets and something that creates victims who are special compared to other unemployed people. I think that also requires an acknowledgement, a broader acknowledgement, that the free market system thrives on competition, change, ingenuity, and the pursuit of new opportunities that arrive. Taxpayers should not have to finance yet another expansion of this program and provide yet fewer incentives to rejoin the workforce, just as these expanded benefits would do. Just as we were no longer uh, compensating steam engine workers or candle makers in recognition of the changes that have occurred, neither should we continue to compensate um, people who have lost their job because of trade. The whole purpose of trade, remember, is to give consumers access to cheaper, more efficiently produced goods and services. And, and TAA, I think, dilutes those benefits. So I might leave it there. Well, thank you, Sally. Uh, before we move on to questions, uh, let me just note that this entire uh, video will be available on our website, cato.org, in a matter of days. So if you want to pass it along to a colleague or just found it so fascinating, want to watch it a couple more times, check out cato.org in a couple of days and it will be posted. Uh, questions and answers. Uh, before you ask a question, a couple things. Uh, please state your name. Identify what office or organization you're affiliated with. And uh, please try to keep your questions relatively brief, if you don't mind. I know this is a contentious issue. But, uh, yes, sir. And please do speak up as well, since we don't have a microphone for you. John, from the American Study. Uh, less, less than six months ago, some of the opponents were, were using 
as proponents for using Medellin, for example, as a renaissance city in Colombia, the opponents were calling it almost, a, almost insinuating it as a Uribe Potemkin village. And I want to know two things. Has the recent uh, congressional trips there or the fact that some of the Clintonistas are negotiating Samovuchi with Uribe people changed that fact? Convinced him. I'll, I'll re repeat the question briefly. <clears throat> it was, is the progress in Medellin reflective of the country as a whole, or uh, is it a kind of Potemkin village? And uh, has there been any evidence that members of Congress who visit there have been, uh, have been swayed? Well, I think the evidence is overwhelming that the improvement is economy-wide and society-wide. Uh, people people are, are not fooled so easily. Uh, and what we've seen is that tourism to Colombia is up significantly, and they're not just going to Medellin, they're going to lots of other places, and tourists are very sensitive to this kind of thing. So if tourists are trusting the more secure environment, uh, you can be uh, sure that something uh, real has gone on. I believe uh, just about every member of Congress has been invited to go down to Colombia, uh, and I don't know the exact number that have gone down, it's something less than that. But those that have gone down have been very impressed. Just about everybody I've talked to that has visited Colombia has been very impressed. And one final point. Uh, the people of Colombia do not share the skepticism of Speaker Pelosi and others. Uh, President Uribe remains very popular. Uh, last time I checked, his popularity was 80%. When was the last time you heard of an elected leader in a democratic country who has 80% popularity? He hasn't been in this country for a while. Uh, and he was re-elected uh, in 2006 with 62% of the vote. So the people of Colombia uh, know what's going on there. They know things are vastly improved. And I would imagine they will be uh, dismayed, uh, dumbfounded, and a little bit angry uh, when the U.S. Congress, in condescending fashion, if it does, uh, rejects the agreement. Uh, yes. I would like to know what is uh, your perception, what's going to be with this free trade agreement? Do you see any possibility that the yesterday decision will be uh, reconsidered this year, or it is nonsense? There, there, there will be no future for this free trade agreement with Colombia. Thank you. <clears throat> the question is, what, what's the future of the agreement, given the decision of Congress uh, majority in the, in the House to postpone the agreement indefinitely? It's, it's really hard to tell. I mean, it, in fairness, it is the Speaker and the majority's prerogative to put the agreement on, on the shelf. Congress passed a Trade Promotion Authority. Congress can change it. So I don't think there was anything unconstitutional or anything uh, l like that. I do think it's a profound uh, policy mistake. And I also believe that the arguments for the Columbia Free Trade Agreement are so compelling. Again, one part economics. It makes sense economically. It's going to open up markets for U.S. exports, and we'll have a, a, a billion or more uh, in, in extra exports uh, there, and, th and that's a good thing. Uh, but mostly this is about foreign policy. This is about building ties to one of our best allies uh, in the hemisphere, uh, I think if this were allowed to have a free up or down vote in the House, if members were allowed to vote their conscience, uh, I think it would have a fighting chance of, of passage for these very reasons. There, there remains divisions in the Democratic Party uh, on this issue. You can see it, even President, uh, within the Clinton household itself, uh, there, there's a division. And I think you, you would see a lot of Democrats, probably not a majority in the House, but a significant number, who would uh, quietly support the agreement uh, with their votes uh, if they're given the opportunity. Additional questions? Yes, sir. Uh, John Poppolis, CSURS. Um, just wondering, uh, so kind of going off that, I mean, I'm not sure what's wrong with tying TAA to the trade agreements in terms of like a quid pro quo or something like that, because, I mean, doesn't it provide cover for politicians who are kind of on the fence to, you know, jump on the trade bandwagon then? 
Yeah, the, the, the question was basically what is wrong with tying trade adjustment assistance to these free trade agreements? Isn't it worth it if it provides political cover um, to, to members to, to vote for trade agreements? I hope I've paraphrased that pretty accurately. Um, what's wrong with it? Um, there's a couple of issues. First of all, I kind of have a philosophical objection, which I tried to make clear, which is why should we? What, what you know, certainly, you know, where is it in the Constitution? Where is it, you know, in, in the, the very essence of this nation that the individual should be kind of self-reliant and, and, and have dignity on its, on its own? And I think that's also reflected in my comments about the type of unemployment. How do we pick which workers are deserving of issues? Now, you might say, well, you know, trade uh, opens up, you know, and uh, all of a sudden we've got $50 billion a year worth of extra kind of consumer surplus that we could, you know, a billion dollars a year, it might be worth it. Well, you know, maybe at an, on an economic level it might be, even, even though the, the philosophical objections still, still stand. I'm not convinced that's going to happen anymore. I, th I think at the moment, if we just kind of turn to the political uh, wranglings uh, this week, I'm not convinced they would pass any trade agreement, even if we gave them this tr expanded trade adjustment assistance. That's kind of my primary point. What are we buying off here and what is the price we're paying? I'm not convinced it's worth it, even if it ever was. Can, let, let me just add a, a, a more philosophical point. And that is, there is nothing unique about workers displaced by trade. 97% uh, of American workers who are displaced each year are displaced by reasons other than trade, as, as Sally uh, mentioned. So trade is a, a small factor in the overall churn. I think if, if the government's going to have programs to help people transition from one job to another, if, that's a big if, but if those programs are going to exist, they should be aimed at, at all workers and not uh, singling out uh, uh, workers displaced by trade. And I think that's especially true uh, on the Columbia Free Trade Agreement. Because of the Andean trade preferences already in place, the job displacement is going to be minimal to uh, virtually, virtually nil. So there's no uh, real connection between the two uh, in in the world, there's no philosophical connection. Bas basically, the, the bargain has said we'll pass uh, what is basically a, an unnecessary and ineffective program uh, as a price for enacting trade liberalization, which benefits the country as a whole, not only economically, uh, but in terms of our, our foreign policy and deepening our relations with uh, our, our closest neighbors. So to me, it would be a, a huge mistake to... Uh, put an agreement on the shelf uh, that would do as much good as the U.S.-Columbia agreement uh, in order to pass something that is of very questionable value, which is a trade adjustment assistance. More questions? Yes. I'm Julia Nelson. I work with the Fellowship of Reconciliation in Colombia. And this is kind of in reference to what you said about the displacement of, of people in Colombia. Currently, there's almost 4 million people who are displaced in, in Colombia. Um, and, and what you said, uh, apparently trade experts state that at least 1 million farmers would be displaced, putting even more strain on an already overextended welfare structure in the urban centers. This is in Colombia, if the FTA were to be passed. Um, the FTA benefits only a few Colombian farmers, limited to the minority, who export tropical crops to the U.S. Meanwhile, by cutting tariffs on food, food Colombia imports from the United States, the FDA forces a far greater number of small-scale Colombian farmers into competition with large-scale large U.S. agribusiness. Um, moreover, the deal bars the Colombian uh, government from subsidizing farmers, while uh, large-scale U.S. corn and rice growers enjoy billions in subsidies. Um, what would the FTA, how does the FTA pr propose to address this issue of the estimated one million farmers from being displaced who cannot compete with the, the imports coming in from the states. The, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the question is, isn't this agreement going to expose Colombian farmers to uh, competition from the United States, in some case subsidized competition that will displace them and add to some of the problems in the country? <laughs> First, just for the record, we're strongly against subsidies to U.S. Uh, farmers. Uh, between Sally and myself and others, we've published a number of studies that are very critical of that. So we, we'd like to do away with farm subsidies and trade barriers 
Uh, we'll give a transition period, say midnight next Tuesday, uh, and, and we'll phase them out. But having said that, I think the predictions of dislocation from passage of this agreement are wildly exaggerated. Um, one, uh, Colombian farmers don't tend to compete directly with American farmers on very many products. Colombian agricultural sector has specialties that are quite a bit different uh, from, from the U.S. And by the way, it would open the U.S. market somewhat to uh, increase sugar imports from Colombia, not as much uh, as, as I'd like. I think we can take a lesson from, from NAFTA. Uh, like NAFTA, the agricultural liberalization in this agreement is phased in over a very long period of time. Every time we seem to sign one of these agreements, the phase-in periods get longer and longer. They were 10 years and then 15 years. This one's 19 years for some farm uh, products. To me, that's plenty of time to start adjusting, and the liberalization is all, often back-ended. So we're not talking about real liberalization in some of these areas uh, for, for a long time. In Mexico, it was predicted that it would put, you know, millions of corn farmers uh, out of business. Mexicans are growing more corn today than they were before NAFTA was passed uh, because of uh, various reasons. So I would just say I think those concerns are exaggerated. Two, I think uh, Colombia's future uh, is in engaging in global markets, in being competitive and specializing in, in what they do best, uh, and I think protecting inefficient farmers in Colombia and as in the United States is not the way to uh, point your economy and job creation towards the future. In the back. I have uh, two questions. Um, one is there was a, a 1991 Defense Intelligence Agency document which uh, specifically named uh, President Uribe as among the important Colombian narco traffickers. It said it named Alvaro, Alvaro Uribe Velas as a Colombian politician and senator dedicated to collaboration with Medellin cartel at high government levels. Uribe was linked to a business involved in narcotics activities in the U.S. His father was murdered in Colombia for connection with, his, with the nar narcotics traffickers. Uribe has worked for the Medellin cartel and is a close personal friend of Pablo Escobar Gaviria. He has participated in Escobar's political campaign to win the position of assistant parliamentarian to Jorge Ortega. Uribe has been one of the politicians from the Senate who has attacked all forms of the extradition treaty, which would have allowed uh, Colombian narco-traffickers to be sent to the United States. So do you have any response to the information in that document? And furthermore, why was uh, Uribe's chief of staff, Juan Pedro Modeno Villa, the president of a company which was the single largest importer of potassium permanganate into Colombia from 1994 to 1998 when Uribe was uh, governor of Antioquia? And I've asked... Uh, President Uribe personally this question, he never answered it. Uh, potassium permanganate, as you may know, has two main industrial uses, either processing cocaine or uh, producing microchips. And as far as I know, there's not many Colombian computers being made. So, I, uh, uh, I, 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 if Uribe can't answer this question, I hope you could. What was he doing with all that potassium I, permanganate? I, I would just say that that sounds like stuff you could, you could pick off the blog sphere somewhere, but uh, until uh, I, I, I would just say We've got a, uh, a free press and a Congress that can investigate that sort of thing, but nobody has done more in the history of Colombia than President Uribe has done to save that country from the brink of disaster, to reduce violence, uh, and to go after the perpetrators of the violence, not just the left-wing guerrillas uh, who are uh, keeping people uh, in cages in the jungle, uh, but also the uh, the paramilitaries. He has largely uh, dismantled uh, them to a great number, and I think it speaks for itself. So you can throw out uh, those sound like uh, unsubstantiated uh, charges. Well, it's a intelligence agency document unearthed by the National Security Archive. Do you dispute its uh, veracity, or, or do you just uh, choose to dismiss it? Uh, I, let me just count me skeptical. Additional questions? Yes. Hi, my name is Janelle Malkin. I'm currently at American University and just traveled in January to Bogota and to the Putumayo region. It's a rural area right along the border of Ecuador. I was with Witness for Peace. Um, they put out a report uh, really that really shows concern for the human rights situation. Um, 
The number of extrajudicial killings committed between 2002 and 2007 increased 65% in comparison to the previous five-year period, which I think makes statements maybe contrary to what we're hearing today about President Uribe and his, his human rights records. Um, additionally, I just wanted to point out and ask you know, how these concerns can best be addressed in terms of the FTA. It's been shown that a lot of Colombian businesses that are kind of set up to profit from this FTA are also the ones that have strong links to paramilitary death squads and the narco-traffickers. Um, there have even been examples of companies such as Chiquita paying paramilitaries, and this really just creates, especially in the rural areas that I visited, um, in communities that I talked with, it just creates this environment of, you know, that's incomplete contrast to the ideas that we're getting of Colombia right now being a safer society and really improving. And the FTA is also set up to exploit resources in areas traditionally occupied by Afro-Colombians and indigenous communities. So really, we're going to see not just more volatile human rights situation, but a context that really has the ability to displace a lot more people and continue to fuel poverty and the conflict, which we're trying to do, you know, very best beneficial things at the same time. I mean, there are people in the government that is, want is to promote democracy. So, yeah, how would you address these concerns? A lot of, I mean, a lot of what I'm hearing today, with all due respect, is a lot of U.S. policy promoting rhetoric. I would just say this, this issue is charged with politics, and you have people going down there and basically seeing what they want to see. Uh, everybody has a right to their own opinion, but everybody doesn't have a right to their own facts. And I think when you look at the facts on the ground there, the number of people who've been killed is down dramatically. Uh, the social indicators are improving in terms of uh, the number of people in poverty there is declining. Uh, jobs are being created. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, who are we to argue with the people of Colombia? Uh, they have voted overwhelmingly. You, you would be a minority opinion uh, in Colombia. They have voted overwhelmingly to re-elect President Uribe. Uh, they have told uh, pollsters time and time again uh, that uh, they support President Uribe and his policies. That country was on the edge of an abyss five or six years ago, and President Uribe has put them on the right track. And this trade agreement is a m modest but important overture from the United States to deepen our ties with Colombia, to uh, add legitimacy uh, to President Uribe's policies, and to ensure that when President Uribe leaves the scene, uh, that his successor will at least keep the country generally on the path of uh, democracy and improved uh, conditions, uh, rule of law and law and order, uh, and these are all these are all positive things. So, people can throw out uh, uh, wild charges, and you hear some of this here. But I think if you look at what's been reported uh, time and time again, when people have gone down there, professional reporters from the mainstream media, members of Congress, and others who've gone down there. Uh, it's virtually a consensus. It is a country that has been transformed in a very positive way uh, from what it was uh, five years ago. And this trade agreement is really just building upon uh, 15 years of what you have to say has been generally successful U.S. policy, bipartisan policy uh, of engaging with Colombia. I just want to add something to that. I'll let Dan um, dispute the su substance of, of your arguments. Um, first of all, just the fact that you think that we're just supporting US policy. We spend a lot of our time actually criticising current government policy, and I, I hope most of our time is spent denigrating the policy um, of the US government, especially agricultural policy, which does a lot of damage to developing countries. But I just I want to kind of throw out a rhetorical question, and that is by not passing this agreement, how will it save one life of any union leader? Or how will it, you know, not... Um, by not passing it, how, how will it help Colombia to get integrated into the world economy and to, um, you know, be exposed to different ideas of human rights? It's just not clear to me how not passing this agreement will help the human rights situation or save one life. 
Yes, sir. Juan Carlos from the Cato Institute. I just wanted to ask you about the, the terms of the annual preferences trade agreement. Yes, 90% of Colombian exports enter the U.S. market duty-free, but this annual preferences agreement is set to expire, I think it's in September of this year, and that creates a lot of uncertainty over trade relations. So thousands of jobs in Colombia depend on exports to the United States. But if there is uncertainty in the environment, then a lot of investment is going to be dissuaded to invest in other countries that do have free trade agreements. So this is actually going to harm, harm Colombia uh, pretty badly. Yes. Uh, Juan Carlos was my, my co-author on this, and uh, he, he wrote the best parts of the, the study. But that, that is a very good point, uh, and this explains why this agreement is profoundly in Colombia's interest. Uh, one, I think Colombia benefits by opening up their market and having a more competitive domestic market and realizing the gains from trade uh, that comes from that. But secondly, it provides... Uh, it institutionalizes our trade relationship. Right now, the Andean Trade Preferences uh, Law is unilaterally enacted by the United States, by the, by the Congress, and they can repeal it at, at any time. And while this has been a benefit uh, to Colombians, they've been able to export more to the United States, and it's created more real growth in Colombia. Uh, just about every year or every other year, it comes up for renewal. There's some uncertainty around it. Uh, by locking it in, by locking in the liberalization, making it uh, reciprocal and getting it in writing and locking it in and basically phasing out uh, trade barriers over uh, the next uh, decade or so, what you create is a more secure environment uh, in Colombia that allows them to attract more foreign investment in their export sectors uh, because they'll know that they'll have guaranteed access to the U.S. market and, of course, foreign investment creates better paying jobs in Colombia, it gives alternatives to toiling and subsistence farming uh, out in the countryside. This is the path of development that virtually every country has, has followed, moving away from primarily an agrarian society to one that's based more on, uh, on industry, and foreign investment has played uh, a role in that. So yes, this is one of the most important things uh, for Colombia. And if the agreement is voted down, the Colombian trade minister just said this week that if the agreement is voted down or, or put on the shelf and never voted on, it would be like imposing trade sanctions uh, against Colombia. You know, we have trade sanctions against Burma. Are we going to turn around and impose trade sanctions against one of our best friends uh, in the hemisphere?